Hello, and welcome to the Patio Slave Podcast. It's May 28th, 2020, and I'm here again uh, with Anthony and Nate. My name is Tony. How you guys doing tonight? Doing good, man. I've been looking forward to this as usual all week. We had a great episode with uh, Scott Russo last week and uh, back this week with some original content. I've been doing good. How about you, Nate? Yeah, same. I was really stoked about the uh, the interview we did with Scott Russo on Written Law. That was really awesome last week, and I've uh, been looking forward to this, too. Had my birthday week this week, so it's kind of a birthday uh, special, cranking some beers with you guys and talking music, you know, best of all worlds. Hell yeah, man. Happy birthday, by the way. That's awesome. Uh, and yeah, shout out to Scott. Uh, that was that was a fun fun conversation last week. Uh, we had a lot of fun talking to him and, you know, kind of going through our, our history with the band and all that fun stuff. So a lot of fun with that. Um, so to get started here, we're just going to direct you guys to the socials like we usually do. If you haven't checked us out on there, uh, on Instagram and on Twitter, we are at Slave. And then on Gmail, we are at Podcast at gmail.com. So uh, hit us up if you uh, want to, you know, throw some stuff out there. You know, we we heard from some people this week that we we're pretty excited about. Uh, Dan M in Florida is listening. Thanks, man. Much appreciated. We heard from Brett in Australia, so going a little international flavor. So thanks, Brett, for reaching out to us on Instagram. And we had a really cool email from Chip. Uh, I mean, that I got a little I got a little misty eyed here at home. It was a little dusty at home when uh, I read that email. That was really cool to hear. So thank you, Chip, for uh, tossing out some nerdery with us in the email. That being said, I'm going to throw it to Tuan for the set list for tonight. For tonight, we got a few news headlines we want to want to touch upon, including uh, Corey Taylor. Also, um, as you probably heard, Joe Rogan signed a big deal with Spotify. Also, indie musicians and how they're hanging in there with um, the whole COVID and potentially asking Congress for relief. And then um, also, I know we uh, kind of teased this on the Instagram, which was a, a throwback concert to 15 years ago. Both Tony and Nate, you guys saw U2 down at the Garden. We'll recap that. And then the big thing for tonight, which I'm super, super, super stoked on, which is... We, um, we're going to do a deep dive on three albums that turned 20 this year. I uh, won't give them away quite yet. You'll have to kind of wait in there and at the end of the episode and see what we picked. But, uh, yeah, that's kind of what we're looking at. With that, do you, um, do you guys want to get right into the first headline? Yeah. I was just, like, thinking about it, like, when you were talking about uh, live music. And one of the things that we were kind of curious about is moshing is apparently going to be full-on banned from any future concerts we're a little older so i think we've kind of not grown past that phase we just have a little bit more liability now with injury so we don't jump in the mosh pit anymore uh, per se but um i thought that was kind of interesting just because there's a lot of ground rules being you know laid down on all fronts and then live music now you're kind of restricted to apparently not mosh anymore what do you guys think about that well it was not only uh, no moshing, but no crowd surfing or no yeah. stage diving. So basically, no con- it's a no contact sport. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so I know like a lot of shows that I've gone to growing up and even recently, they're not in like real venues. They're in, you know, skate parks. They're in um, halls or VFW halls. And there's there would be no one there to police that. In fact, those shows wouldn't even happen if those rules were enforced. They would just... You know, you you do a streaming live concert over that, you know, as opposed to just standing there. Yeah, I uh, I can't imagine a world where we're back at shows and there is moshing right now. I mean, there's it's going to be everybody's stint, you know, keep your distance. You're not going to have 10 people sidling up to the bar with, you know, five people behind all of them trying to get drinks. 
it's just going to be a different world for a little while when we get back to shows. Uh, that being said, uh, can you imagine wearing that suit? Did you guys see that suit they put out on the internet this week? Oh, man. That COVID suit to go to shows? That would be nuts. Like, I already swept my ass up with those things anyway. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's how weird it's getting. Yeah. It's like now you are restricted to stand or watch. It's almost going to, maybe it'll go back to like all seated shows for everything. But, um, in, in a spread out fashion to kind of support the hazmat suit that, yeah, that tone's referencing. You'll have to pause this episode and Google it. Just put in like concert hazmat suit or something similar to that. And you'll see what we're talking about. It's pretty wild. It's very futuristic. Is this from the movie Tron? Like what's, what's going on here? Is this real life? Um, yeah. The dynamics of live music are changing, I guess, per se. We don't really know. This is all kind of like, you know, future forward, thinking statements in terms of you know when things do kind of go back to any kind of normal state live music wise but um yeah the mosh pit thing you know we're all in our mid-30s and like i'm not a violent none of us are violent people but and mosh i don't think moshing is is really violent it is if you're not if you don't really understand what's going on but it's really a it's really actually kind of everyone's really together in this like <laughs> aggressive behavior as one unit like people will pick you up if you feel if you fall down it's not really me against you it's like hey let's all thrash to this music and if someone drops you know pick them up so it's, there's a lot of unity there yeah but there's always that one guy right he's kicking he's <laughs> he's doing cartwheels and he's throwing elbows and that's, that's the guy we want that guy to go away but um <laughs> and actually if you want to see a breakdown of this i was i was watching a youtube video earlier today it's an old one brian you guys are familiar with the comedian brian Posehn, right yeah he's oh, a big yeah. metal head big yeah metal guy. so metal by numbers go check that video it's a great nice. it's a great kind of representation of, of i know what uh, you're talking all of it it's, it's such an awesome video i'll tweet it out later it's great it's an awesome video <laughs> Well, the thing is with, uh, I'm just thinking back to that, the uh, concert hazmat suit. Mm -hmm. I thought it was like an Onion article or Hard Times parody thing. But no, there's a company that's like prototyping and mocking these up. And I was just thinking like the economics of it. Like they wouldn't make it disposable, right? I mean, that'd be way too much money. So they're intended to be reused. Are you going to put that on after some sweaty guy that, you know, just got out of a you know, Slayer show, he's, he wore that. <laughs> and just like the cost of it, like, do you, do you rent it? Do you, I don't see it working. Like this is too short term, I think for anyone to be investing that type of money in, but you know. No, I mean, what I read is it is in fact a reusable unit. So it is something that you'll essentially lease for the show. And yeah, I, I clearly they're, they're going to do some kind of intense thorough you know, cleaning sanitation of this hazmat suit. Um, but it's just super bizarre. And I, and I thought it was a joke too. And then I re- researched the company and they already have ties into the music industry. They, they uh, have contracts for production setups and stuff for existing artists. So they're actually, they already have a foot in the door. So it's not like they're just a random startup. Um, yeah. It's I would cool. want my own. I don't know about you guys. I would want my own. BYOS, yeah. bring your own suit. Yeah. Bring your own suit. Hazmat till I die, bro. <laughs> well, like you know, are they one size fits all? There's like so many questions that why it's like why bother? Yeah. Well, I would have fit. I would have fit into a different size suit before the quarantine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, there's a capability to add vape and beverage. So clearly, beverage <laughs> yeah. alcohol uh, units to the suit. So you can actually consume. There's like a little portal where you kind of twist, and these things uh, kind of 
some way flow into the suit. It's very bizarre, man. Very I mean, weird. that's onion article shit. Yeah. Yeah, that's it just... really is. You're right. It really is. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I mean, yeah. I was going to say, getting back to like banning moshing and whatnot, that's to limit the contact between people, obviously. And I think right. yeah. certain shows, it, it just would be weird. I'm sure some some uh, genres of music would just choose not to do it. Uh, but then others, that might that wouldn't affect them. You know, they would just yeah. not mosh just like they would, you know, pre-COVID. Yeah, I, I had uh, Bonnie Vare tickets for this summer, and I doubt there was going to be much moshing at that show. No. <laughs> pro- pro- probably not. <laughs> just hazmat chilling. <laughs> yeah, right. Except for that one guy, right? He's just doing karate kicks. <laughs> You're right, though. There is that one uber-violent oh, guy that's what people associate moshing with, which is, oh, these aggressive psychopathic people that are in there trying to kill people. It's like, no, it's actually not the case. Well, there is that occasion that there's that one guy in there that's super pissed or girl that's super pissed or whatever. Um, I've gotten roughed up in a, in a mosh pit before, but it's all smiles, man. It's a good time. Yeah, the guy crowd punching and all that stuff, yeah. Yeah, or your metal show, things that you're talking about with people with, in there with like medieval weapons or something. <laughs> oh, the bad luck 13, yeah. right, extravaganza, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I got punched in a, in a pit once, but it was because I hit the guy so hard he was trying to catch my shirt on his way down. That was head oh. PE at the station back in the day. Uh, oh. Right in the middle of waiting to die, I just kind of chucked this guy, and he he didn't see it. It went flying and threw his arm up and punched me right in the eye. Yeah, Not anymore. No more of that. Yeah. So we we'll want to uh, – go ahead. I was going to say, speaking of like moshing concerts where moshing is part of the culture is Slipknot. And uh, Corey Taylor my was mind. Just- uh, we're always reading each other's minds. Us yeah. three here, uh, but yeah, Corey Taylor kind of fits uh, into this realm with the fact that Slipknot is very much a staple metal band, um, and moshing and you know crowd uh, participation in the in the show is very much part of the show. So uh, yeah, Corey Taylor was in the news. I guess he's utilizing this time to write what has already actually been written prior, but kind of letting it know, be known to the public that he wrote a solo album. So that's really cool because we all really like and appreciate what he does. And he's a gifted songwriter and he's actually got uh, quite the range for singing melodic material. So I thought that was really, really cool How about you guys. Yeah. I think for, for me, I had two thoughts. One was, is this going to be stone sour junior? Right, that's one path. The other thought I had was, I don't know if you, I don't know if you guys saw like the news with Slipknot in the last like six months, but they have a shelved album that's supposedly in the vein of Radiohead. So then my head goes, well, is this solo thing gonna be Radiohead, Radiohead Junior? So Stone Sour Junior or Radiohead Junior? Uh, either way, I'm in. I'm yeah. in. Yeah. That's that's quite the range. Um, I know Nate. We met Corey back probably four or five years ago in Portland uh, before yep. a Stone Sour show. And mm-hmm. you're, you you nailed it. Like the dude, the dude's voice, and we've seen him both for, with Stone Sour and with Slipknot. All three of us have seen him with Slipknot. Um, the dude's range is uncanny. Like he really yeah. can. And he's not a big guy. Like he's probably, yeah. what, five, six? Mm-hmm. And just the amount of noise that he can produce and, the, you know, the levels that he can hit. Like I, I this solo thing could go any way, and I'm definitely here for it. Like I, I want to hear how what he's got in store for all of us, because the dude can just do no wrong in my eyes, as far as music goes. Yeah, and he writes from the heart too. You know, we were talking about that with uh, Scott uh, Russo. It's like you, the reason some of this music becomes so large is because it, you can kind of differentiate what's real and what's not. And Corey's 
speaking from the heart and writing from the heart. And some of the songs are extremely brutal and some are just super melodic and love songs and breakup songs. And that's why, uh, yeah, Corey Taylor's a class act. I mean, he's, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm excited for it. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens. I know his influences include people like Trent Reznor and that kind of fits the vein of Trent's with Nine Inch Nails, like super heavy music, but also some really complex and sometimes simplistic lyrics that lend itself right or left or straight or back. You know, there's really no way to just put it in a box. And there's melody with both of those guys, right? There's, yep. there, there's, and people don't often think that with Slipknot or often think that with Nine Inch Nails, but mm-hmm. go do your homework. There's absolutely some melody there, and that's why we love those guys. Yeah. Well, I, I associate solo albums with being more on the acoustic side mm-hmm. which i would actually be more into that than if he had a backing band because if you think about like bother that shows i mean that he carries that song with his vocals the other thing mm-hmm. i was thinking about is he's what 45 how old is he somewhere around there yeah i'll look it up go ahead so a dude like that is gonna lose his range at some yeah. point so like now's the time i think he this is like the twilight of when i think he could do this so i think the stars are aligning and if it was the quarantine that t- tipped it off then i mean we benefit from that 46 46 oh because well. i think like, you're right because you know, even like when i saw him this summer last summer there were some notes he couldn't hit for slipknot i could see that too because he he did do some solo tours where he would do some slipknot songs some stone sour songs some covers. So he actually did cover Hurt by Nine Inch Nails and he played a Pearl Jam song. He played Black actually, um, which, you know, Pearl Jam songs have quite the range as well. So uh, there was a teaser that he was going to do something solo, but these solo tours were like small clubs, like 600 cap, like clubs, tours kind of off the cuff. I think at one point he was like promoting a book that he put out. He's also an author. Um, and he just did like a solo, you know, tour him and an acoustic guitar to just, hey, I'm on the road anyway, I might as well do this kind of work ethic that he has, which is really cool. Um, but yeah, if, if it goes that route where it really is just him and a guitar, like it's one of the few instances where someone from like some giant act will, um, you know, it's something we actually would gravitate towards, I think. And he, he fits that mold of um, can't sit still, right? I mean, you look at guys like him, Dave Grohl, uh, Trent Reznor, they're always, their hands are always in something. So yeah. writing a book or doing a music sound, you know, a movie soundtrack like Reznor does, or Dave just, here's my Instagram stories, I'm just going to write stories. And, you know, he, there's, there's always something going with those guys. Yeah. Um, I do remember part of that, that Stone Sour show, Nate. He, he did a little acoustic by himself. And that was awesome. So if it's an acoustic album that we get from Corey Taylor, um, that's fucking great. I'm in. <laughs> well, you guys sent a YouTube video of Corey doing some acoustic cover. What was that? Yep. Do you remember what song uh, that was you sent? I think it was Nine Inch Nails, right? I can't yeah, you sent it. I'm pretty sure it was it was a nail song. It might have been The Becoming or um, The Fragile, one of those. Something You Can't Have or something something like that. And it was, uh, it was just really good. It was a big sing-along and... Yeah, well, that and, that and that's the thing. Like, he's ah, he's just he's singing so passionately. It's like an Eddie Vedder or like a Trent Reznor or like a anyone that's like there's so much emotion into it. That's why Slipknot works. You know, Corey is definitely a big part of that for sure. Um, but yeah, solo man, I can't wait for that stuff. It'd be cool. But like each one, I, I actually <laughs> I do hope it's just him and a guitar and something super simplistic because then it will be Stone Sour Junior. <laughs> Something I Can Never Have, Nine Inch Nails song. From, okay, that's what I thought. Um, oh, boy, what album is that from? Why am fragile. I drawing a blank? It's yeah, fragile. fragile. Yeah. That is 
That's crazy, man. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Other music that uh, other little topics that are kind of going in in that route. Clutch doing a live show, live stream, right? Last night, right? That was last night. Yeah. Um, With Crowbar and um, they it was from the Doom Saloon, I think is what they called it, which is a, a track from I think Psychic Warfare. Oh wow. I love I love Crowbar. That's a love cool, Clutch. That's, that's a cool uh, cool show then. And that was it was it was definitely live. It wasn't like a re-recording. Yeah. I didn't see it. I wanted to watch it. I didn't get home in time, and then I crashed. <laughs> yeah. No, they performed like live. That's a kind of first a little teaser of like you know wh- what route it might go towards. That <laughs> we all hope not. But because um, Clutch is also an energetic show, it kind of goes to that moshing thing. It's like that's a Clutch is a show like meant to be played in clubs and theaters and like drinking a strong IPA and just like grooving with the music. Like, I don't know if I can really watch that online. So I didn't catch it either, but I thought it was interesting that it was a band that we actually do like doing something like that. So a couple months back, I know uh, Anthony and I both have an Oculus, one of those uh, uh, virtual reality, and they have events on there and clutch was an event. And I remember I, Twan, did you go to it? I missed it. Totally. Yeah, so missed I, it. I went, I watched like, Three, I think I caught it like maybe 10, 10 minutes in, so I missed maybe a song or two, and I watched the rest of it, and it was pretty good. Like, I mean, I would much rather be there. And they, we saw them like five or six years ago this month um, in Portland, and I would much rather have been in person. That was a blast. That was for the Earth Rocker. Yep. They were out for Earth Rocker, and that album was just badass. And it'd be cool to see them in person again. But it was, you know, it wet my whistle as far as seeing Clutch, and you know it. I'm at home on my couch, and I was able to have a couple beers and not worry about driving home. So, oh, man, don't don't like it, don't <laughs> don't make it happen. No, I mean, but in the meantime, I'm into it. Like, yeah. thank you for giving me something to look at, you know. Yeah. But the big story with that show was not the show itself, but yeah. they released a limited edition T-shirt. Was it? Did the did the shirt reference the show, or was it? I didn't see the shirt. I think so. Yep. Yep. It did, and um. And they and like everything on their website went um, for sale too for the last couple of days like forty eight hour sale too. Wow! So that's like, again, uh, I feel like in an early episode, go back and listen. I feel like we called this where it's like everything's yeah. gonna be mm-hmm. catered to this, you know, quarantine live show, limited merch. Like the bands are gonna have to be creative in terms of two things: one, generating revenue, and two, keeping fans' attention, because mm-hmm. like. If you're not playing live, a lot of these bands, they're not getting revenue. And keeping fans' attention, if you're not in the limelight with a lot of these bands it, it, on socials or whatnot, you're out of sight, out of mind. Yeah, and it's already the struggle to stay relevant as a band. So now with this, I mean, I can only imagine what it might be like. And to your point, the merchandise was the main driver for this kind of live stream show. And it's actually not for them. It's actually to pay, or at least to have some of the revenue go towards their road crew, which really are kind of stuck in a hard place because that is their whole livelihood is, is touring. So uh, good on them to do that. And anyone that's, you know, creating any kind of platform for ancillary businesses. Yeah. And, and the other thing with that, we've, we kind of joked about this in our, our pre-production. Um, so their set was like 50, 55 minutes long. And I mean, is that not perfect live al- album, live album, Mm. length right like so okay here's the here's the vinyl 
it's on like marble, black and white, whatever. Do you want to buy this for thirty bucks? Yep, I'm in. <laughs> like it's a quarantine sessions. I'll buy that. Yeah, I love this band. Wow. And that's the type of thing that they would probably release on a couple different colorways, but they probably wouldn't repress it. Like you would go into it knowing one press, maybe three colorways, and that's it. So it adds to the limited, you know, like the whole Supreme Streetwear. Like it's all limited, and it hypes mm-hmm. up the demand. But I'm in for Record, it. Record Store Day 2021 clutches quarantine <laughs> sessions comes out. We called it. Just remember that. That was oh it's a year from now. We called it right here. <laughs> what episode was it? It was episode 12 on the Party of Slave podcast. Tony called it. Yeah. Give him so credit. That's coming. Just and and I'm gonna I'll be in line for it. <laughs> I'll be in line with all my music nerds when we're back talking to each other again in person. Wow. I like the I like the move though. Like it's. It's all all this stuff is tip of the iceberg because once one band does it, another one's gonna be like, "Oh, well, that was successful for Clutch. We're broke, and yeah. we need we need to do something." Oh, and another thing too on if the, if this happens with your prediction tone is now there's so many ways to garnish any kind of metrics that would make that pressing valid. Like, oh, we're gonna do a forty five thousand x uh press for the for this vinyl release because we know that's like a pretty strong core following out of our overall following that would actually buy this and that'll be a great roi and maybe even you know be you know i don't know 25 percent of what we would make in the year for touring or something like that um you know there's so many ways to gauge metrics now spotify and youtube and so forth one, I liken it to one of those like live in studio type things. So instead of getting the crowd noise, you're just like, you know, that like Zeppelin BBC sessions where it's live and they're all playing together at once, but there's no crowd noise or not a minimal crowd noise or whatever. And you get a live album that, you know, they were able to put together with, you know, their sound stuff and all that, you know, jazz as far as that stuff goes. So it's just a different way for a band like them, an indie band, which we'll get to in just a second, more indie bands, but um, an indie band like them to continue to be viable and get stuff to their fans and, you know, change the game a little bit in these uncertain times. I am I love it. I think it's a great idea. Well, the other thing they can do is they can auction off the test press, you know, and say, mm-hmm. hey, this, we'll throw it up on eBay, whatever. All proceeds go to the road crew, go to the sound guys. But kind of like getting back to the whole supply and demand thing of like limited and whatnot, Kind of a <laughs> tangent here, but the band Terror I saw today released a um, Terror-themed slides, like the the flip-flop things, you know, the, the slides? Yep, yep. Yeah, Terror slides. It's like, would they have come up with those if we weren't in quarantine? No, they're, they're trying to be creative. So it's like, what what's next? Like clutch slides? Wow. I, I buy clutch slides. Clutch yeah. gym shorts? <laughs> <laughs> uh, guy would buy clutch gym shorts. I have a clutch sweatshirt. I have a T-shirt. I have a hat. Yeah, and I mean, I have a bunch of records. So yeah, I guess I would buy those things too, especially if it's going to a good cause. You're right. Test pressing is a great idea because yeah, I mean, run the run the jewels just announced their pre-order. Their album comes out in like a week, um, and they had test pressings that went for a ton of money. And if oh, that yeah. you know, if they're using that money to go towards taking care of their own, awesome. You know, for people that can do it, like I'm a person right now who can do it because I'm working. Yeah. I will. That's awesome. But it wasn't until like I, we I mean we talk about this in past episodes. It's not until you get older when you realize the economics of being in a band. Like, mm-hmm. as fans, if we want these bands to continue full time, there's got to be a little give and take, or there's no give and take, and you just accept that you're not getting a new album or you're not going to see these guys live. Mm-hmm. 
Well, we talked about the Patreons, right? Like a lot of those bands are doing that to try to, you know, indie bands especially. And that, that leads us to our next story, right? Um, the indie bands, uh, there's about 700 of them, I think, indie bands and artists that have petitioned Congress for some help, kind of like a small business. Because, I mean, that's what they are, right? They're all small businesses. So this is uh, a way for them to try to, again, stay viable during this time and, and stay active and, and continue to be able to produce for fans. And it's another way, you know, they're, they're asking for a little bit of help from the government. So, and they're giving money out to friggin' steak and shake. They, they can't give it to, you know, uh, modern baseball or <laughs> one of those type of bands. So it's kind of crazy, but that, I get it. I get why they're doing it. They're, they're a small business. Yeah. That's what Tone's referencing is, over 700 independent musicians signed an open letter to ask Congress for COVID-19 relief. So the way I look at this is kind of similar to independent mom-and-pop restaurants that are basically being ordered to shut down, while places like Target, Walmart, Amazon are just thriving. And I know this is different restaurant to a rest, um, to like a big box retailer, but it just goes to show like there's definitely some you know, politics going into, hey, keep these big big guys alive and maybe the small guys just, you know, kind of shelter in place for a while. Well, for musicians, if you're well off and you're a stadium rocker, like, you're pretty well off no matter what. Whereas the small people, like, smaller bands are, are having a hard time making ends meet. So they're looking for some kind of stimulus and way to, to stay afloat. And, um, you know, the clutch thing is a good example of ways to generate revenue for roadies and so forth for these small bands like how does that work and where does it where does that line blur i don't know no i think you nailed it getting back to the infrastructure and using the mom and pop restaurants and the big box is actually a good example because you know you got the olive gardens of the world that can they can spin up a curbside to go system you know whether it's online or whatnot but the mom and pop guy they can't. So they're relying on foot traffic to come in, but they can't open up. So with mm -hmm. that kind of parallel, yeah, like Foo Fighters is fine. They can survive this. But if you're Modern Baseball or Circus Survive, I think those are the couple of the bands that were in that article. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I get it. But the other question I'd ask is, are they eligible for the $1,200 stimulus? <laughs> can they double dip? Probably. I mean, it depends on how much they make a year, right? That was how that was determined. So yeah. if you're if they're making if they're a big enough band that they're making more than that hundred K threshold, then maybe they don't get it. And if that's the case, then maybe do like what Clutch did and try to help out your people around you. But if they're a small, you know, asking for a Patreon type of band that probably makes forty to eighty K a year, then they probably get those stimulus too. But that again, that's not depending on where they live, that doesn't go far. That doesn't go very oh, far. Oh God, no! Yeah, it's, you're right, especially depending on where they live. But even here, it wasn't much. <laughs> yeah, that's your rent. That I mean, that for a lot of people wouldn't even cover their rent uh, for one month, depending on where you live. But I don't know. I I'd have to read more into it to kind of fully gauge an opinion. But I I do get it. If if they're a, if you're a band that is full time per se, you're yeah. re you're relying on touring and whatnot, and people are saying you can't do it. I get it. Yeah. Totally get it. Yeah, it puts the brakes on the big, and we've talked about, it, we've referenced it so many times in this uh, podcast that touring live shows, which we all adore here, and is why we made this podcast in the first place, is the lead generator uh, for revenue on all fronts, um, with the exception of maybe license licensee deals to an extent. I mean, if you run an advertisement 
during Super Bowl with like a Black Keys song for a Chevy commercial. Like that's a big, 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 big paycheck. But uh, that aside, you know what I mean? You still have to be kind of in that ballpark to get those kind of contracts in the first place. So, yeah, and these are it's difficult, man. And not everyone's there. And I think the future is just presenting itself opportunities to maybe pivot and what we're doing here as a podcast, you know, it's not a revenue stream for us, but it is for some people. And uh, one of those people is Joe Rogan, who just signed with Spotify for yeah, an exclusive. It's just a tiny little revenue stream for him. Tiny, hundred million or something a year, no big yeah, deal. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> did we did uh-huh. we get the final final on the dollar amount? I just heard it was over a hundred million, but I didn't hear the time frame over how many years, or if that was one year. I don't know. I I don't know. I'll look it up as we're talking. But yeah, that he signed with Spotify. He's going to be exclusively Spotify by the end of the year. Um, in the meantime, it'll be on most platforms until at least the fall, right? And then he'll try to pivot everything over. And even the YouTube page, where a lot of people watch it, will be through Spotify. So they won't be on YouTube anymore, which is, I mean, YouTube is probably licking their wounds like, oh, my God. Not that Google's hard up, but that's a big loss for them. I mean, a lot yeah. of people watch watch that podcast that way, right? I mean, I know you guys do. Huge. Yeah. I mean, I'll, you know, I, I haven't listened to him on uh apple podcasts in ages it's all youtube and it's all um the algorithm that suggests it so i'm scrolling through youtube i do you know every every night before i go to bed i feel like and it suggested a um tony hawk clip from his recent uh interview on on rogan and i watched it was a 10 minute clip you know light light watch put it on in the background but if he moves to spotify i'm not getting that so i think his total listenership goes down but it does bring people. It will 100% bring people over to the Spotify platform, and that's what's trying to happen. Right? Spotify's trying to do that, right? They're trying to kind of gobble up the podcast market, and they're doing a great job with it. I mean, this is a big fish, like the biggest probably. And and mm-hmm. and this is music adjacent. Obviously, it's not something that we're typically into, but we're podcasters. We're in the form. We use Spotify to upload, like bring Big Daddy Joe over so they can find us. Like, we're cool with that. <laughs> I don't have any problem with using using Joe Rogan to find, uh, you know, uh, what we do. He he got Tony Hawk. We'll get him next week, you know. <laughs> it's all good. But he, uh, they asked him how much uh, in the Wall Street Journal and or the New York Times, and he said, I'm weirdly richer, and it feels dirty. I don't want to talk about it. So the, the, <laughs> the details of the number are still kind of murky as far as that goes. Well, the rumor was he was making $26 million from YouTube. Or, no, not from YouTube from the podcast like in 2019. So that tells me that at the very very most this deal is worth 3 years, which would be 33 mil, but he'd mm-hmm. have to it could be 1 year. It could it could be Howard Stern money. Hmm. Which is nuts. That's a lot of money for 1 year. And good for him. I mean, that sets him up. He not that he's not set because he's obviously the one of the OG podcasters that's been doing it for a long time, but he's uh a 100 million for a year is just bonkers money <laughs> it's just yeah it's crazy i mean it just my mind's spinning right now because he's actually a comedian by trade you know he's not a journalist you know but he his podcast is just so good so detail oriented and just the guests he gets on the conversations that are on there are they're legendary they change stocks right um a reference to elon musk on his first one um yeah i mean it just goes to show that maybe he knows internally that wow i'm not gonna be able to do stand-up comedy for a long time and this is something i've been plugging away for with my podcast for the last 10 plus years 
and now I've got this contract. And now, to your t- point, Tuan, he is basically the new Howard Stern and probably will be for a very long time because um, he's just so good. And he, is, he gets everyone. It's amazing. He does get everybody, and uh, you know if if there's going to be a big interview, he has it. And if it's not somebody that you would think is a big interview, he makes them a big interview. So mm-hmm. he's kind of the the what Stern was ten fifteen when Stern started with Sirius. He's what Stern was there. Like he would he was on four days a week, and he would get the big names, and he turned into this big interviewer of everybody where. Um, now Rogan's doing that and kind of setting the dialogue as far as that stuff goes in a format that has no, no way to, you know, you can do whatever you want. It could be five minutes. It could be an hour. It could be three hours like he does. So I always look at those and I think, oh yeah, three hours is long, but I'm going to break it up. Like I'm not going to listen to it in one sitting and I have no problem checking this one out. So that's, you know, if he's got somebody on that I'm interested in, I absolutely throw it on there. That Hami one was really good when he had Josh Hami on. Mm -hmm. And I, it was, it was fun to listen to those guys just kind of bullshit for two and a half hours, you know? Well, the thing that I find interesting and I would love to get down to the economics of the numbers. So say it is for two years, just say conservative two years, hundred million, that's 50 million a year. That is a shitload of subscriptions that Spotify has to net new. Getting Rogan on is a loss leader. That is, we're going to take a loss to get people on the platform. It's this whole thing with like Netflix where they'll have huge budget uh, shows, which they'll lose money on, but collectively it does get eyeballs on the platform. But the difference there is you can listen to Spotify for free without ads. So I don't... Mm -hmm. I get it's a long-term play. It's definitely a loss leader, though. They're not going to make money r- right off the bat. Yeah, that might change. I think you just brought up a good point that that might change where it's not just a you know, free-for-all, and that'll kind of pivot towards the paywall we've referenced in, uh, prior, that it's going to all of a sudden be like, hey, it was free. You know, I think times have changed, and now we have this amazing content. Um, so. So, yeah, and, and he said that his podcast isn't going to change. So what he does is going to continue to be what he does, which is good if you're a fan of what he does. And a lot of people are. I mean, he's been going for, what, 10, 12 years, and he's got 1,400 episodes, 1,450 or whatever. So he's not going to, um, per se, change. There'll be ads in the front of his podcast like there are now. I mean, you if you doesn't matter where you grab them, whatever platform is like sit five to seven minutes of ads and yeah. then you start the podcast. So, and then there's some at the end, right? Like most podcasts do that. Not here yet at the Potty Slay podcast, but hey, <laughs> we'll take you. We're in, man. Call us. Hit us up on Gmail. We plug so many beers. <laughs> yeah, we have plugged a lot. Of, we love beer. I mean, if anybody brew wise wants to, wants to, I'm drinking a swish right now, Bissell. Come on, Petey. Let's go. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, the uh, he's he his podcast I believe will stay the same. I can't imagine they're gonna want to fuck with it because he's obviously been super successful. So it's gonna continue to be what he is, and just you're right, it's a loss leader. He's gonna he's gonna cost them so much money, but th- the hope is you bring in a million people, right, or millions of people to listen to that. Well, at least for me, and I don't know how others consume his podcast, but it is a bite size. In it's in bite size segments. It's in the you know, Tony Hawk 10 minute segment about how everyone called him a sellout. Like I'm clicking on that. Am I going to go, you know, try to look for that? Oh, I guess I wouldn't even know about it. You know, if it was on Spotify, I don't know. It's interesting. I like, I would love to fast forward to like a year from now to see how this plays out. Cause he won't be in like, from like an eyeballs perspective, he'll be in front of less eyeballs without YouTube. So, and Spotify, we've mentioned this in, in, uh, 
episodes past, Spotify wants you to stay in app, right? They're going to just yeah. want you to stay there. So they'll have, there'll be a video service that comes out of this from them where maybe you've got uh, whatever band, you two, here's a live video of them doing something wherever, you know what I mean? And here's, you know, or a piece of a show that they got cameras on stage. And then you've got the the Rogan podcast, and you can get to it that way. Like there, you you're gonna have a, a Spotify app on your Apple TV or your Amazon Fire Stick or any of those things in the very near future, where you can just stream and watch the video. They're not gonna they're gonna make it so that you can have it the way you've been having it, just through them. They want you to stay in in house. I think the play, you heard it here first. They buy. I'm not going to say Twitch because I think someone else already owns Twitch, but like they'll they'll buy something else and they'll embed Vimeo. It. They're going to buy Vimeo. They'll buy Vimeo and they'll yeah. embed it into the platform. Or daily motion and just make it better. Yeah. yeah. So as you say, Tone, they want you to stay in app, just like Facebook does, just like they all do. Yeah, I'm I'm here with popcorn, waiting to see how this un- unravels. Yeah. Yep. There's so many predictions we've made on this, and I, as you were talking, Tone, I was just like putting the graphic in front of me like yeah no this seems like that that could go to, this could be their five-year game like business plan behind curtains like spotify has a pretty substantial platform currently but youtube has no competition it's amazing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i don't count vimeo at all you know what i mean or twitch even so therefore yeah spotify might just be like boom we're gonna do videos too now and um you know we got rogan interviewing bono and now everything that's ever been recorded by youtube on youtube is now obviously property of the band but now has to be exclusively on spotify so anything youtube related gets pulled almost like a napster gets pulled for a metallica bootleg type thing i mean who knows man mm-hmm. uh yeah the ramifications of this are going to be felt for a while just like the covid stuff <laughs> right we're going to see this is a changing in landscape as far as podcasting goes and podcasting has obviously become very big we're able to do it um pretty without a ton of buy-in as far as what we've done and i, I feel like we're doing what we can and it sounds good. So, uh, you know, a lot of people can do that if they pay a little attention to detail and find ways to, to market themselves and promote themselves like we have and others, obviously. Um, but yeah, he's, he's the king of it right now. And he just totally jumped into the pool from the deep end cannonball style and, and threw some ripples everywhere. Right. It's a different world now. Actually, speaking of ripples, here's a take that's not hot at all. This, this will happen. (laughs) Super cold takes. (laughs) Joe Budden is going to get paid. Uh, so he I signed, next. I think he was the first one to go exclusive with Spotify. And he's on, if you look at all the charts, he's right up there. I love that podcast. I've seen the podcast live. If you told me 20 years ago when I found out about Joe Budden, I would see his podcast in 19 years. I'd be like, wait, what? The pump it up guy? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, him. Okay. Well, he was the first one to sign with Spotify and it was small money. Hmm. When his contract's up, he's getting paid. Or else he's well, walking. And, yeah, yeah, and he'll go to YouTube or whoever wants to decide they want to throw their hat in the ring on this. And uh, the Ringer, Bill Simmons, uh, the sports guy, one of the biggest podcasts in the world as well. He's on the the Ringer. Bought was bought by Spotify back in February for almost two hundred mil. So Jeez. there's some money being thrown around in this game. And hey, we're here. We don't need all of that. We just need some of it. <laughs> Man, it's exciting times though because it's. It's so much cleaner. It's so much less bias. This free plat, these free platforms that allow you to kind of utilize your your rights and that freedom of speech and not be censored by you know regular network television and, and all these things. But we've been kind of riding these things for a long time. Podcasts is, have been around for a while. They're just starting to become a little bit more mainstream now. At least 
at least in terms of like a mainstream audience. But uh, yeah, but nothing's more mainstream <laughs> than this next band that we're going to reference. And that's you too, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Good call. Yeah, that was, oh, man. I mean, Nate, you say it was your birth. It was your 21st birthday. So I want you uh, to take the reins on this one. Give us, give us where you were, how it went down, and then I'll give you my side. I mean, a lot of people know you too. Everyone knows you too. I feel like you either yeah, if love you don't them. know you too, why are you listening to us? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, keep listening. We love you. <laughs> you either love them or you hate them. There is a lot of people that don't like you too. And I understand because they're very, uh, they're like what you think about in terms of like stadium rocking band that like everyone knows that's like super glitzy or at least they were in a few phases of their career. Um, but, you know, they're, they're an Irish band for four original members from Dublin, Ireland. Uh, they got started back in the eighties and they're still, they're still together and they're still making amazing music. But, um, yeah, May 26th, 2005 tone. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. My 21st birthday. I don't even know why I had to reference my 21st birthday. Probably cause oh, it was shit. kind of a blur. Should we cut that out now? <laughs> <laughs> Probably cause it was kind of a blur. 21st birthday. Um, but yeah, yeah, I was 20, so I couldn't meet you out for drinks before, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. I turned 21 that day. Boston. You two is playing, uh, what was known as the Fleet Center, Fleet Center in Boston, uh, now the TD Garden, and they rebuilt it. Um, but yeah, man, that was an incredible show. Uh, we made a little write-up on uh, our Instagram page to kind of rehash that. I got a little on the deep end in terms of uh, speaking super deep on on how it felt. But uh, anyone that is a fan of U2, I think they can kind of relate with those feelings because um, they're already kind of a religious band to an extent, although they kind of identify as universal. But uh, they were kind of a Christian Catholic, uh, Catholic bander, something in that realm for a while. Um, but it was, it was a, there was a feeling in that room and in that performance, uh, even, even just that tour that was very special. And, uh, it was our first time seeing you two for me and for tone. Um, and I don't know, I've, I'm, I've been moved ever since. So, um, yeah, absolutely. That, that show that day, uh, it's, I mean, I've been going to concerts now for, uh, 18 years. Uh, um, and that I this is four years into my concert going experience and I have yet to top it. I've seen some really cool stuff since then. Obviously we still talk about it here. Uh, many of bands that have been, you know, very close to top, but this show, this group, this room of people, which was 18,000 plus, uh, I was Nate was down on the floor. His our buddy Rob got him tickets, uh, and they were down on the floor, which is I'm super jealous of. But I mean, I got that later on when I saw them the second time. I was second row from the top, and this is one of those cookie cutter basketball arenas that you're you're way up there. I was straight on from the band. I remember getting there, finding my seat. Uh, I went with my neighbor. Um, she was a, a person I grew up next door for 15 years and we went to that show together uh, she was she's irish so she was super excited to see you two for the first time as well um and it was just you know from start to finish an otherworldly experience i can't even i, I listened to city of blinding lights again the other day because they opened with that song on that show and i i found videos on youtube that weren't as good as the actual experience obviously but i was still getting goosebumps and chills and feeling like this is something that i'm i'm never going to recreate so yeah, it was it was a badass day, man. Like they they were just at the peak of their powers. They were on tour for Vertigo for uh, uh, how to dismantle an atomic bomb, the Vertigo tour, and they they played everything I wanted to hear, and they just sounded so good. And the room was very very captivated by them. And and it, they did three shows, right? That we were the middle show of the three night. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It was a three day residency. 
and there's obviously a lot of Irish culture in Boston. So um, I think playing Boston for U2 is probably a special stop for their tour. Um, but yeah, I remember that show so vividly because I went down with Rob and my brother met us down there and had a few drinks with us before we went to the show. And I really wanted him to go, but it was obviously completely sold out and uh, <laughs> dealing with scalpers trying to get a ticket, but it was oh, just not going to no. happen. In Boston, yeah. at the end of their American leg, not going to happen. <laughs> yeah, it was not likely that was going to work out. So, um, but yeah, that show, I mean, it's weird because we talk about live music a lot. And like, I I try to like not say it's the best show I've ever, ever been to because I've been to so many great shows and there's so many different types of music we referenced slipknot earlier like think, how do you compare slipknot to like, u2 you know yeah. um <laughs> or like woodstock 99 to you know seeing a band in a club that eventually got huge like it's hard to like nail it to one but uh, there was just something there's so many things about that show that makes it number one and then i obviously having my 21st birthday the same day makes it extra special um and you might think i was like completely wasted but um i remember the show front to back like I don't. I didn't miss a beat. Like I was just so thrilled to see him, and uh, had been following this band since middle school. So to finally see them was like uh, I don't know. I can only imagine like being a teenager and then finally seeing Led Zeppelin back in the day or something like that. Yeah, we'd been listening to these guys forever, um, and it was um, it was pretty pretty badass. And you know, I I remember this is early on in self the, the cell phones having texting. Obviously, this is 05. Um, there yeah. wasn't iPhones for all of us. I remember texting and like asking nate like what are you wearing i'm trying to look at you down on the floor like you guys are ants down there <laughs> like where, <laughs> wave wave to me bro was it t9 word the oh yeah oh yeah, oh, I, had yeah. One of those, I had one of those like not a sidekick but something that like flipped up and it was like you had a keyboard <laughs> oh you had that one i had the just the regular the nokia brick it's just like <laughs> which still works today <laughs> yeah snake and everything um <laughs> so i i get a confession outside of Probably the unforgettable fire. I've never listened to a full, besides that album, a full U2 album. And I'm wow. saying that because I went back in prep because I knew you guys were gonna we were gonna talk about this tonight to look at the set list for like the tours around that era. Mm-hmm. And for someone who has not intentionally listened to U2 outside of that album, I recognize like half the set list. Oh, nice. So even for the casual fan, like you can still hang. But mm-hmm. knowing you guys, and I would guess collectively, you guys have seen, uh, I, I'm not going to say four figures, but three figures, you know, in the hundreds of shows, for mm-hmm. both of you guys to say that show is up there, it's yeah. like, it must have been special. Oh, yeah. It must have been special. Yeah. Speaking of referencing things on YouTube for archived footage, like, there's some really, actually, I have a DVD from that tour. Um, I think it was i can't remember where it was shot it was definitely not that boston show but they did the same obviously like a production like this is very much uh not rehearsed but it's like a uh it's a whole stage production you know what i mean so that show is documented in this dvd and uh, a lot of what's on youtube but um it was so awesome man it was so cool and they're a very universal band so they speak to all cultures and all all walks of life and i think that's why there's an extra layers of special there and that was kind of around the time that obviously they were they were like the band of the world at that point. Like they're probably t- one of the top bands in the world, if not the top band in the world, as far as money goes, as far as what they could put on for a live show. They're selling out massive venues. They're, I mean, they're the, the mighty and powerful U2 30, 35 years in. And 
that was about when they started to like really experiment and throw some stuff together to make the live show even more. Like they spent some cash on those live shows starting in about 2003 or four or five, right about when we saw them. So we got to see kind of the beginnings of that. And then I think, I mean, they, they'd done that around, like you've said, Nate, they, they've got DVDs of all that stuff. I know the evolution mm-hmm. tour a few years back was huge and they did like yeah. a big 360 stage and, you know, Bono strutting around and all. I mean, he was doing it back then too. He, he knows he's Bono. I'm not going to give, <laughs> Yeah. he is like, I'm, I am Bono. You, everybody knows he's Madonna. He knows what he is, right? He's huh. just the biggest one name star in the world at that point, especially. Yeah. He's like a John Lennon in a different era. In a lot of ways, very much a peacekeeper, very involved with uh, world politics and world peace. And yeah, in in that, he was promoting a lot of things for uh, the Red Campaign, which is to help raise money uh, for a foundation, nonprofit. And um, yeah, U2 was huge then. They still are. But that was a kind of a, an interesting peak for them because commercially, that's one of the rare commercial things that that works because it's come it's not coming from how many records can we sell even though that is an agenda but it was bono and the band has used that kind of spotlight for a lot of political and social change which um i think added a layer of compassion that made that show and the band and their uh ethos very strong it's like oh this band isn't just about being some mega pop band it's like there's some social change here that we can all identify with which is you know, life's hard and there's places in the world where people can't even get a meal. Um, and Bono and the band have helped any kind of relief to, to make those ends meet. And, um, it's still an ongoing challenge, of course, but. So if you had, uh, Nate brings up charity in the pool, uh, how many minutes in are we Twan? <laughs> 50. <laughs> nice. So drink if you had 50 minutes, <laughs> Nate, I love you, bro. You got a huge heart. That's, that's why you are you man. So, um, <laughs> Is there anything like is there anything like hearing an edge, you know, solo coming into an album though, or coming oh, into man. a song live? You're just like, oh yeah, that's the edge. Nobody else can sound like the. I mean, they, people can try, but you know, it's not the edge unless he's doing it. Yeah, Tom DeLonge tried with Angels and Airways. <laughs> Tom DeLonge's tried. Um, I know Brand New did on a couple songs. There's actually uh, from their leaked demos a song that they had titled at the time, the one where Vin tries to sound like the Edge. That's <laughs> so, awesome. Yeah. It's out there. Right? People know the edge is the edge, man. That wah wah pedal and what he does, it just nobody oh. else can do it like he does it. So yeah, actually, awesome. I'm I'm gonna backpedal. I've heard two U2 albums in full. You know what the other one nice. was? The one that Steve Jobs put on my iPhone. Oh yeah, we've talked. Oh. About that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Apple and then U2. Put this out here. Everybody will love it. No, we hate you. Don't do that. Uh, if I download it myself, though, I'm in. When I was referencing love or hate, that's where the hate comes in. A lot of people just, oh, I hate that fucking man. They like hacked my phone. It's like, nah, it wasn't them, but yeah, understandable. understandable. And they just gave you free music. Like, what the <laughs> yeah. frig are you pissed about? <laughs> that's so good. Yeah, I um, do. Do they still tour? I. Oh yeah. 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 Um, I w- I saw them a couple four five years ago. Um, same same venue, but I got to be on the floor this time, which was by accident and i'll tell that story another time because it's a good one and i want to i want to give it the time that it needs but yeah they still tour and they still are awesome um bono's obviously they're they're older and they don't move as well as they used to and he he doesn't quite hit the notes the way he used to but he's he's like 60 something right i mean yeah 
but he's 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 still Bono, man. He's pulling girls up on stage and he's you know putting them in videos. And I think they had a Periscope going at one point. It, it was cool. I'll talk about it at some point on a later date because it was another. It's probably a top six concert for me. <laughs> so those guys yeah. o- occupy two of my top six or seven concerts ever. Yeah, you two still crushing it. I saw them on that tour that when you saw Tone. 10 years ago in LA and it was also well the one I went to was the day after my birthday because my birthday I spent down in San Diego um, but scheduled some work travel <laughs> meetings around the LA stop they, yeah they did a residence res, residency at the LA forum and I went to the 27th so it was like exactly like 10 years after that show that we went to and it was great like you said but uh that first show I don't know there's something about it that was a little different maybe they're younger I was 21 everything I have um, always I've always equated it to a religious experience. I'm not super religious as a as a rule, but mm-hmm. I've always equated it to this everybody in this room is one right now. And like I was hugging old ladies in my row like oh, nice. we were all on the verge of tears. Like it was just it was something about that that everybody was just happy to be where they were and I've yeah. never I've felt that it shows in the past with the people I'm with or um, even part of you know a, a decent part of that crowd, but I've never felt like I was part of a gigantic entity, a two thousand you know a twenty thousand person into everybody's into this. This is why we're we're all suspending everything right now to be here and in this moment and not with other things. Yeah, that's why live music's amazing. That's why we don't want it to go away, <laughs> and that's why we're still talking about it now, <laughs> fifteen yeah. years later. Fifteen years later, and then twenty years later. Is... Yeah, what happened then? What happened 20 years later? 20 years later. The segment. The segment. What you've been all waiting for. <laughs> yeah, 20, 2000, the year 2000. Tony, you want to do the uh, Conan? Yeah, so in the year 2000. <laughs> if anybody's familiar with Conan O'Brien, they used to do that bit in the, what, 97, 98, and then they did it even after the year 2000. Yeah. Great, great bit. Go go YouTube those because they're hysterical. <laughs> Yeah, year two thousand segment. Uh, I was super excited to to get this uh, going on this podcast because it's such an iconic year. It's obviously the change um, for a lot of bands and and iconic albums. So we all kind of did a deep dive on uh, an album each, uh, different kind of genres per se, I guess you'd say, uh, but also just um, super influential and just staple albums of two thousand. Um, and so yeah, we're gonna kind of go into those details a little bit. Yeah, and I think that's the key is like a ton of great albums came out in, in 2000 um, and we'll likely have this as an ongoing segment. But to kick us off, we wanted to really focus on, I would say, genre defining, at least in one of the cases, um, oh. maybe in all of them. Uh, but yeah, we all we all took one for a deep dive and we're all very versed in these albums. I mean, these are what we really grew up on if you think about 20 years. So that's the... That's the that's the segment, and um, who wants to start? Lewis is tough. They're all, all three. They're of all really ones. good. Yeah. Um, I can I can go first if you guys want. Yeah, let's do it. All, all right, let's cool. do it. <laughs> so, um, all three of these albums hit three different genres, right? And we were fifteen, sixteen when they came out. Um, Fourteen. Four, you were you were fourteen for some of them. Yeah. yeah if, it was late, if it was late in the year, you were fifteen. Right. <laughs> True. Yeah. So, and we all know what what Nate Nate's birthday is now. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, but yeah, the uh, the album that I chose, um, and we have a whole list of forty five of them. But this one was, it was a big follow up to an album that was very very large for this band. Um, it was Kid A by Radiohead. So, 
Radiohead is coming off uh, the Benz and then OK Computer, right? And those two albums were, especially OK Computer, were massive for them. And so big, yeah. They, and and I, I remember Nate, we uh, when you before you moved to California, I remember watching. Um, uh, what was the name of that DVD they did? Meeting People's Heart or something like that. Um, oh shoot! Oh, yeah, I know what you're talking about. And the the Radiohead DVD that came out in between um, OK Computer and. Um, Kid A, and yep. they they were it was like them kind of on the press tour for OK Computer and live for that and how they were just kind of kind of gassed by the whole thing like they were done with with being Radiohead and done with all the press and the people and the um you know the stuff that went along with big band and it, they were big at this point so they they went back into the studio um they they got together and kind of went in a completely different direction um there's some elements of this on on okay computer but they they went full on like electronic and kind of unplugged a little bit from the guitars um changed their sound completely and at the time obviously not super well um received but they you know it, it became a, a a classic as far as like electronic kind of pop kind of rock records went and um, it, the funny thing is they used the same producer, Nigel Nigel Goodrich. He was the same producer as the OK Computer album, and that album is a little more rock-oriented. It's got Karma Police. It's got Airbag, which is one of my, probably my favorite uh, Radiohead song. Um, and then they they went in a completely different direction and, and kind of went more synthy and computery and keyboardy. And uh, it didn't work out early, but it ended up being essentially a scene classic as far as that that type of music went. Um, probably one of the first, if not the first album to fully utilize the internet, um, as, as a means to promote it. Um, they obviously were, were putting songs out as singles, but they didn't make any music videos for it. They didn't, they, they did a lot of stuff through the internet. Um, it was available, uh, promotionally as a stream early on. And in 2000, think about 2000, not a lot of people had the wherewithal to, to stream an album. It was probably a lot of dial-up still. I think we were still on, or just barely into cable internet at that point at my house. So they're they're using the internet to stream an album and, and get it out there. That That's ahead of its time, right? I mean, and yeah. they're the band that ended up being one of the first bands to put an album out and do the pay-what-you-want thing with In Rainbows after yeah. this. So they were always been kind of on the forefront as far as this goes. Um, it's They did a lot of... Uh, bootleg performances and videos from fans put on the internet um that was kind of something that had not been done before as far as promotional goes it was their first number one album in the u.s which is kind of crazy if you think about it like the benz was really big you'd think okay computer might have made it there but it didn't pablo Kid honey a, maybe pablo oh, that yeah, was the first that, yeah so maybe not with that one but okay computer would have been probably the one you would think but yep. because of okay computer this album went number one um to probably some upset people, but it ended up being, I mean, if you, if you go back to it now, it's, it's a great record front to back. It's just different. Um, they like to, to do, I think I'm going to go key tracks for me right now. Key tracks, everything in its right place, which is the album opener. Um, doesn't sound like a Radiohead song at that point. It does now. It sounds absolutely like a Radiohead song now, but if you go back to that time, it sounds very synthy and poppy and they're messing with, uh, Tom York's vocals and, there's not a lot of, you know, you don't hear a lot of band, you don't hear a lot of guitar, you don't hear a lot of um, the drums. It's just very keyboard and Tom York, and that's what you're going to get. 
but that song's really cool. The national anthem is a fun song. There's a lot of horns towards the end that are kind of funky yeah. and weird. I revisited it recently, uh, a couple nights ago, and I was like, I don't remember this track. And I was really vibing well, with it, though. The second half of it, right? The yeah. second half of it's all horns, and they're just like, just here's this horn, and then here's this horn, and then it's just fun. Just right? big like, band. It feels very yeah. big band. And it, it it's completely different than everything in its right place, which is kind of crazy to me. Um, Optimistic is probably my favorite track on the record. Oh, yeah. Uh, that's a kind of straightforward rock song, and that's probably why it's my favorite track on the record, but <laughs> that song could have fit in with OK Computer. Um, How to Disappear Completely, I think, is an underrated um, Radiohead song. I listened to it again today for the second or third time this week just to in prep for this, and it just fit, it's a vibe. Like there's there is a feeling of sadness. There's a feeling of we don't want to be around all these people anymore. We want to just kind of withdraw into ourselves, which they obviously did. Um, so I would some would say to a fault if you go all the way to the King of Limbs situation where it's mm-hmm. just all electronic and they're not even a band really anymore. They've come out <laughs> of that sense, but yeah, um, yeah, they that song is kind of the starts of that. Um, and then Idiotech is another big one that was yeah. uh, a single and very poppy, very synthy situation that is it's almost like some of the bands that you would hear in the late 80s that were like new wavy, like they kind of brought new wave back 20 years after. So um, yeah. this album was, was crazy to me. Um, it's a complete shift from what they were as a band. With, there were a couple pieces of OK Computer that sounded sort of like this, but they were more of a rock band back then, right? So three years later, they're putting this album out. What do you guys think? Yeah, I mean, you my my two standout tracks are Optimistic and Idiot Tech. For me, I I mean, I'm not the biggest Radiohead fan, and and that's not a negative. It's actually I I do like them and I get the hype, but but I don't always go back and listen to them. However, again, another backpedal here. I listened to this album in the last week and I get the hype. Like if you go mm-hmm. on, if you search, uh, you know, a lot of the, um, you know, uh, rollingstone.com or any of those sites and, and type in like Radiohead albums ranked kid a is one on all of them on pretty oh, yeah. much all of them. So I, 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 I do get it for me. I'm an in rainbows guy. Cause yeah. that's the album I listened to the most in the moment. I was yeah. a little late to the game. But I remember hearing Optimistic and Idiotech in the moment in 2000. Yeah, I love this album, and um, it is—it's a—it's a pretty complex band, so it's—it's it's not easy to get into them. Even though there's some cool, like, melodic singing elements, but I can imagine Twan, um, depending on how you get into them, it's—it's it's not an easy one. It's—they're just—I mean, it's such a weird, diverse band. Uh, if it wasn't for my brother, I probably wouldn't have had the introduction to this band like I had. And it, and I think it would have probably taken it all the way to In Rainbows to understand what was going on here. But In Rainbows is also such a um, fantastic album to get into the band because it's so front to back. Um, but yet I'd already been into them. So Kid, when Kid A came, I was kind of like, I was ready. I was like, I went to the record store day of and it was kind of thing, ready to grab it on the day that it was released. Um, but everything in its right place, like that song as an opener for an album, like wow, like way to set the tone. Like it's a killer jam. Well, um, and it starts off kind of just Tom York singing in his falsetto, you know, yep. everything, and it just like gets into, and then more stuff gets added as the song yeah, goes on, which is I really cool. And I mean, not that we're, I mean, if you have a little straight drink and, and listen to it, you might be all right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's a, uh, it's a cool, it's a cool vibe as far as how that song goes from start, to, and then it like kind of closes out with just the the keyboard um, 
synth yeah. stuff at the end that's just kind of oh yeah this is this is how this is going to fade out it's a it's a it's a great opening track um but you know if you're a fan of uh, the bends it might be a little different for you <laughs> to, to try to get into this so pablo honey the bends pretty straightforward rock records and then um okay computer is mostly a rock record with a little bit of a departure here and there but this is a complete departure as far as that stuff goes so does this album pass the 20-year test yes for me yes i think it I does would say yeah i would say 100 percent. yeah if anything when tone is talking my my mind's always just like spinning in all these different directions and when tone is talking i was like you know 1999 into 2000 it felt like we were kind of going into the future kind of like 2019 going into 2020 and now like it really is because we're going to hazmat suits for shows and stuff like that but <laughs> <True>. like <laughs> but this radiohead album kind of has that futuristic uh element to it um you know with the synths and uh it's just a, like a, like a ton you're saying it's it's such a departure from prior that it was like oh wow they're kind of changing direction um and it makes sense because we're going into two, 2000 so everything felt like oh we're going to go into this amazing paradigm shift uh, in terms of how songs sound and this was kind of a precursor to that to an extent it was just an experiment kind of um but shows that their uh their intense diversity as a band yeah and and the the kind of crazy thing is they recorded this alongside amnesiac which is the album that came out after it the following year which if you think about it like this album at the time was not super loved i mean it ended up gaining that cult following as far as and not even cult like they're still a huge band but um Mm -hmm. As far as this album was concerned, it, at the time it was kind of not panned, but it had trouble. And um, Amnesiac was kind of more of the same, right? Because it was recorded around the same time. So if you listen to Amnesiac, it's probably even a little more experimental, a little more kind of out of left field. Um, the crazy thing to me, I was looking at the the Na- kind of the Napsterish numbers and the and the streaming numbers. This streamed four hundred thousand times, and today that's a pretty good number, right? In yeah. 2000, that's freaking crazy. Like, how how is that even possible with the the way internet was back then? You, people don't remember, the, but 2000, the internet is a very different world than it is today. Like, it's all yeah. in our pockets now. It wasn't in our pockets until 10 years ago, maybe. You know, re- really, for the better, five years, five, six years ago, it was really in our pockets well. Mm-hmm. The fact that this was streamed that many times in the year 2000 is people on their computer at home downloading the album to listen to it or streaming the album to listen to it. That's That's nuts. That's a lot of people. It is a lot, and I think you're right. Like that was the cusp between dial-up and yeah. cable. And if it was the cable, uh, if it was the um, dial-up era, you had to really want. If four hundred thousand people, that shows you how in demand they were, because mm-hmm. a lot of times you would download it overnight and it would cut out. You'd wake up and it didn't. It didn't download. You know. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that you're, I'm, I'm with you. That's that's very surprising. You know what I just thought of is, I'm just trying to think. Those numbers are alluding toward a demographic that's tech savvy, I think, because Radiohead um, has like an interesting. Um, well, I think they they have a fan base that spawns all walks of life, but um, I just remember the Kid A era was very much like, um, and I, I'm calling myself a geek, like kind of like geeky, like tech savvy, like yep. into you know I'm gonna go the route, I'm gonna actually wait and make this album download kind of thing. Whereas if it was some kind of like garage band, you know, that just wouldn't be the case. So it kind of goes in tandem to an extent. Um, and especially with the theme of this album. So obviously promoters didn't like it. Um, I know that the song optimistic, there's the line and this is, uh, you know, um, 
No, where was it? I just had it. The best you can is good enough. That came from Tom's girlfriend at the time because he was kind of oh, well. down. He was down on the the process of recording the album and was like, I don't know if this is gonna be any good. Like we're just kind of done. <laughs> so this was a very pivotal moment for them. Like they yeah. were, they were kind of on the verge of not being a band anymore. Like just being sick of each not each other necessarily, but just the life. And and he's like writing optimistic, which is not optimistic. <laughs> but she's like, the best you can is good enough. And he's like, oh, I'm gonna put that in the song. And I mean, that's I love that song. That's a great song. It is a timeless album. Like, if that dropped in 2020, people would still be into it. You know what I mean? Because yeah. a lot of bands are Radiohead clones. Like, they've mirrored themselves mm-hmm. after that sound. Uh, and that's a testament to to the album. I mean, I, I get it. I'm, I'm kind of a Radiohead convert. Like, I, I in 2020, I get the hype. In yeah. 20, in 2000, probably a casual fan. I was probably a casual fan back then. I think I was crossing over from casual to like, oh, I completely get what's going on here. Even though I was a fan before, but it was like such a change in sound that it was like, it's hard to like grasp. You're like, ah, but I kind of like, okay, computer. <laughs> yeah, right. And they and they played, um, just getting back to what they did around this time, they did um, some like big kind of tent shows in Europe where they just put a big tent up and people would show up in a wow. field somewhere which is kind of crazy it's i mean that's awesome. kind of a precursor to some of the the festivals we saw in the mid-2000s right mm-hmm. like just here's a big tent show up and here's radiohead like okay yeah i'll go to that and and same nice. thing with um they came to the u.s they played smaller venues um by themselves and then did some of the bigger venues on the second leg with cigar roast but um mostly by themselves and they <laughs> they recorded um i might be wrong the live recordings which is a good go back and peep that if you're, you've never listened to that that's a fun live kind of record um has the national anthem on it, it has optimistic some other stuff so mm. that's cool wow we ready for the next one yeah classic album nate you want to go you want me to go or do you want me to go they're both amazing i know them uh-huh. <laughs> this is the first <laughs> time we go? told each other i'll go um so we're gonna transition genres big time and this artist needs no introduction. The album really needs no in- introduction. Um, whether you like hip-hop, rap, or not, this artist kind of transcended genres. Uh, and we're talking about Eminem. So the album is Marshall Mathers LP. Comes out in 2000. And, you know, kind of tone to take your approach back up a little bit. So what happened before then? So he broke on to mainstream in like 98, 99. So Slim Shady LP comes out. He hits you with, my name is super catchy, poppy, you know, a lot of tongue in cheek humor. Follows that up with Guilty Conscience, which that's when you knew he had the Dr. Dre backing. Yep. That whole Dr. Dre endorsement. So instant credibility. So that comes out, big success. And after that, before Marshall Mathers comes out, he has that feature on Dre's uh, "What Forgot About Dre" that was on Chronic mm-hmm. 2001, which came out yep. ironically in '99. Um, <laughs> and I think he smoked Dre on that song, M's verse. <laughs> totally yeah. smoked him. So this is all leading up to the major label sophomore album. So I know he had that infinite. Was it infinite? The yeah, infinite. Yep, yep. infinite. Mm-hmm. Um, so as far as major label, this was his sophomore album. So channeling back to Greg Bergdorf from Zebrahead, episode nine or whatever it was, you have your whole life to put out your debut, but you only have a year to put up, put out your follow-up in the album after that. Yep. So this is a lot of pressure, a lot, a lot of pressure. So he drops Marshall Mathers LP 
in 2000. So a couple kind of personal memories for me. We were freshmen in high school. It was a, it was second half of that year um, of the school year. It was in the spring. And I remember listening to this on my disc man. Yeah. And I remember specifically being, uh, it was after gym class and just having the headphones in and I bought it the day of, it was one of those like, you know, Slim Shady, uh, real Slim Shady. I love that song on the radio. I need that album, and that's when albums yeah. dropped on Tuesdays. So if you're an OG, you know that that dropped on a Tuesday. So I remember doing that, and then also that summer I played uh, summer baseball, so senior league baseball, thirteen, fourteen year old team, and we uh, did the summer league. I think we won the state tournament, and we're traveling down to like Vermont, New Jersey to do regional tournaments, and all the, the, my teammates, parents drove us. So one of my friends, dads had a minivan. So there were like six of us, you know, 13, 14 year olds in a minivan. And what was the soundtrack that whole, that, that whole trip was Marshall Mathers LP. And I remember specifically my buddy's dad being like, what the hell is this? Like questioning if he should even let us listen to it. Like, I mean, if he should, he should have been questioning it. If you know, you know, like the, you know, so I remember, uh, as a, even as a 14-year-old, you knew how ridiculous the album was. So oh, that's yeah. some early early memories. So a couple comments, then we, and I'll, I'll open it up here. But I would say my reaction to the album, objectively, it's a classic. It's yep. a classic album for any genre. For in-genre, I would say it's it's a near masterpiece. I don't think it is because of a couple things. There's two songs that I always skip. Always, always, always skip. And it's, it's been like this since the day I bought it. Remember Me, the one with Sticky Fingers from Onyx. Yep. Skip that mm-hmm. back then. I skip it now. And obviously Kim. Like, I'm not yeah, going to listen is, to that. Kim is a tough hang. I, I'll, I'll say this. The first time I listened to Kim all the way through was, like, pretty recently. Like, I never, I yeah. always just skipped it. And, if again, if you know, you know. Um, yeah. And then the other thing is near masterpiece is the lyrical content. You know, as a 14-year-old, you think it's, you know, funny and whatever. As a 34-year-old, it's like, I don't know if I need to listen to this. You know? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> but that's just a couple thoughts. You know, it for him, it transcends the genre. He was all over um, the Anger Management Tour, Warp Tour, early days. He was on TRL, MTV. I mean, he was huge. Mm-hmm. The memories I have, Twine, you just kind of opened up the memory bank in terms of when I was first listening to this album, and it was on the way to Sunder River to ski. The school had a program, the rec program, where you'd buy like uh, kind of a season pass type thing to ski through the school, and they'd provide transportation, and it'd be every Sunday in the winter. And uh, someone had this album, and I listened to it, and I was like, just like floored because I was like, I was into some hip hop, but I was mostly into the albums that we had referenced in other episodes, like the Free Willy soundtrack and Nirvana Unplugged. So like, this is kind of like new new territory for me, and I was like, wow, this is like in. It just seemed like, especially with the skits and stuff, that I was like just listening to some kind of like comedy album. Sometimes I was like, what is this? It's just it doesn't really make any sense. But it was intriguing at the same time because his voice is so like unique. He's got this, especially that album. He's got a very like young, whiny almost, whiny like uh, parody thing going on. But 
and makes his own little sounds for the segments or in the song bits, like like making the sound of a chainsaw and stuff like that. Yeah. And I was like, this is like really wa- like weird, man. But I really like I like it for sure. Um, but that was the first time I heard it, and then I did the same thing. I went and bought it, and uh, it was well it was well um, advertised. You know, it was it was a lot of um, money spent, trade spend on on making this album what it was. But uh, well well deserved because it's it is an iconic album. And the content and the time and place. Um, there, there's no other time that this album could have come out. If it was earlier, it wouldn't have worked. If it was later, it would have been You're too right. late. Yeah, it was like the exact perfect time, uh, infrastructure wise, album wise, him as a person. Like, uh, yeah. And it, yeah, it's, it's an album that just kind of blows me away. So, um, talking about early Eminem, uh, in 98, we were on the, I think we we're in middle school, eighth grade. Washington DC trip and I remember Slim Shady LP and just listening to that on the bus and being like I shouldn't be I, I know I'm 13 I should not be listening to this like I, my <laughs> parents would not understand why they like be like what are you doing um but like that's what we had like that was one of those that was part of the appeal if for our you know he kind of hit something for our age our group of of friends our time period as as you know preteen teen into high school type of stuff where he he knew how to find us and not, not that we agreed with what he was doing, but we were like, okay, he's taboo. I'm going to listen to him. And, yeah. and it, he played that up to a T on those first two albums Yeah. to the point where there, you're right. Twan, there's songs that I will not listen to. I listened to Kim all the way through for the first time in probably ever as well the other night in prep for this. And I was like, I this is hard to do. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm not telling people to go listen to it because the rest of the album has some pretty pretty solid bangers on it. And lyrically, yeah. he's as good as anybody at this point. Um, you know what's funny? I just looked through the track listing of this album and then Eminem Show, which came out a couple days ago, 18 years ago. Wow. So much more mature. Like just yeah. there's just and that album I was I did what you did, Tuan. I put it on my disc man and I didn't turn it off. And I was I walked around school. I was in the middle of class listening to it. People just I was a decent student, so no one gave me shit. <laughs> uh, but yeah, he those songs don't have what some of these songs have. But at the same time, there's some really masterful songs on this record, and that's why it's pretty damn close to a front-to-back. Drug Ballad, amazing. Yeah. Just an amazing, amazing... It's a dance song like he had on, on Slim Shady with... um, Oh, geez, what's the name of it? Uh, it's it's middle of the album, similar to this one. Uh, and this this song is just perfect, like as far as a, a, a Slim Shady Eminem song goes. And... Criminal. I mean, oh you God. can't. And beat that's the it. album closer. Criminal. Yeah, and you can't beat the lyricism on that record or that song. It's just perfect. And there's some stuff in there that's really not great, but it's an awesome song. <laughs> like he just, mm-hmm. does, it's just Eminem being Eminem and and pushing the buttons that you want pushed. And then Stan was obviously huge, right? Stan yep. was just a big song, and still would to this day it made Dido. It turned Dido into a thing. Like without yeah. Stan, there's no Dido. So, yeah, it. it it hit me again hearing it for the first time in quite a while. Um, the the guy was obviously he still is very talented. He's still doing stuff today. So um, one of the better lyricists we'll ever hear. Um, Nate, you mentioned something I wanted to bring up, which was mm-hmm. earlier today. I thought to myself, if this album came out today, how would I like it? And yeah. my immediate thought was, it couldn't come out today. Exactly what you were no. saying. He nailed the time and the place. So then I flipped that around and said. Well, what if I was 34 when this came out back in 2000? I wouldn't yep. have been, I wouldn't have, it would not have the same impact. 
And it gets yeah. down to, like you said, it was the, he scratched that itch, that taboo itch that you have when you're 14, 15, whatever it was, um, the stars aligned. Mm-hmm. And I still do come back to this album for select songs. Criminal, he still does that live. I saw him last year. He still does yep. Criminal. He still does, um, obviously, Real Slim Shady. Um, he does The Way I Am. He does Stan. There's a few others he'll still play. But, um, yeah, I have a couple factoids if you guys want to hear them on this album. Absolutely. So one of them is, um, well, actually, one, one of them is a little story from the label. So you remember with Greg from Zebrahead from Channel a couple episodes ago, yep. the record label said, hey, we want a Sugar Ray Fly, right? Mm-hmm. We want the big single. So for this album, when they were in the studio, Eminem finishes recording, and the label says, hey, we need a single. There's, n- there's no single we can work with. So guess what song he comes back with initially? Stan. He comes back the way with I am. The Way I Am, which is a middle yeah, finger okay. to like being a celeb. All, yeah. So okay. it's that's a total Eminem move. And then if you think back to the CD, the skit that's leading up to The Way I Am is the Steve Berman skit. where Which is a great skit. Which is a great skit where he's basically like, fix this or it's not coming out. And then it leads wow. into The Way I Am. And then awesome. he comes back to the label after that, and then he gives him the Slim Shady, a real Slim Shady. Yeah. Yep. Um, so that's one factoid. The other one is it went diamond. It actually sold 11, wow. million, 11 million albums in the U.S. And the other cool thing I saw just in doing some prep for this was it actually went gold on its own in the first four weeks of the album. So Isn't in the first nuts? week, it sold 1.8. Second week, eight hundred thou. Third, six hundred thousand, and then the fourth, just over five hundred thousand. Jeez, that was back when albums did that, right? I mean, that just doesn't. That will not happen again. That was a time when that could happen. It won't happen again. Drake couldn't do it. Adele couldn't do that. I mean, those are the ones that would come close. Not even close. Like the the close for the time, closest for the time. If they were big back then, yes. Um, I think. A, a piece of this and the reason he was as popular as he was was he was kind of the anti-boy band at the time and yeah. the anti-Britney yep. Spears and Christina Aguilera stuff. So there was new Metal, there was boy band slash girl band, and then there was Eminem. And Eminem was the only thing like Eminem, and he was yeah. just shitting on all of that other stuff. So wow. to have him be the voice of, I don't want this, I don't want that, I, you're going to have me, yeah. obviously made him a big deal, right? Yeah. I've never heard it like that, and that's really cool perspective because he essentially had a monopoly on on his style and that genre uh, to an extent. Uh, wow, that's a really cool point on. Um, well, yeah, and, and, and it's it's to be said he the lyrics of his songs were to provoke and be, and they were obviously over the top and and a little bit intense at times, yep. but they weren't they weren't him. I don't think they were too kind of provoke everybody and to make everybody feel a little uncomfortable in their chair right that's what they wanted they wanted you to be like oh god he said that oh my god he's making fun of gay people and then he's friends with elton john and does stand with elton john like he's obviously not that guy he's just doing his thing yeah and and three personalities three personalities with marshall mathers eminem and slim shady so we can kind of like ping pong between three different like personas per se i mean it's the same person but uh yeah wow man and that's why i get back to like if I was 34 back then, I would have been able to see through that. I would have been able yeah. to understand it was all for a rise mm-hmm. to some extent. 
but last last question last trivia question then we can move on to yours nate um what was the first album what was the first song he recorded for this album hmm give me a hint um it'll give it away it'll give it away. Uh, okay ah shit uh bitch please too <laughs> <laughs> that's actually i think it's in the next one no it's on that one. it's on that one. All right. uh kim was the first really? Oh God! Yeah. Well, oh, wow. I mean, O seven Bonnie and Clyde, or what? O three Bonnie and Clyde will do that to you, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> wow. But um, yeah. I would say, still a classic album. So I'll ask the same question: mm-hmm. Does it hold up twenty years later? My answer is yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I agree. I agree, and I also agree with the fact that I skipped those tracks. I did it then. I do it now. Yep, and if it wasn't too. for those, and if it wasn't for those two tracks, it would be a front to back. And I guess it is a front and front to back, in terms of what those songs represent as an album flow, because he was psychopathic and kill. Kim is essentially a song about murdering, and uh, yep. and so they kind of make sense uh, in terms of a, an album flow, but they are kind of skippable tracks because they're either too hard to to listen to well, or. Yeah, and if you listen to the next album, the Eminem Show, I think mm-hmm. the song about having trouble with Kim is "Say Goodbye to Hollywood," and it's way friendlier than the other ones are. So, yeah, yeah. Um, and I love "Say." I think that's probably the best song on that album, or one of the best songs on that album. Soldiers. Um, or I'm a soldier. Yeah, soldiers. Good, yeah. Soldiers good too. Um, yeah, sing, uh, sing for the moments. Good. I mean, that we'll get we'll get into that album again. I'm sure. Till I someday. collapse. One of the best songs. Yeah, ever. till I collapse yeah. is a great. And it, it ain't a hit till Nate Dogg spit. I mean, let's be honest. Um, that's a great record too. Great song too. So, um, there's some. It's a little bit more, uh, user friendly, I guess, as it as it were. But I loved that album just as much. Yeah, I think Eminem might be in the running for a, uh, on fire. Yeah. <laughs> oh, definitely. Like there was four in a row. Infinite's great. Listen to Infinite. It's great. Yeah. All right, Nate, what you got? It's just, uh, it's cool that these albums came out at the age that we were in the history that was happening at the time of, you know, technological advancement simultaneously with us being early in high school with music still being tangible to CDs in tandem with being young and impressionable. It's just like, we kind of have like a pretty sweet life in terms of music. I think that's why we created this podcast because a lot of this music that's timeless would only work with our generation or if you were born in like the late sixties and like came up with like the Beatles and Zeppelin and stuff, there's a little middle era there that you might've got tail ends of either or, you know, like eighties with you two and stuff. But um, yeah, we're lucky because we, we got to come up when a lot of the stuff was just getting started. So Eminem will go down. You, you look up like the, the most iconic artists of all time. Eminem's in there. Uh, Radiohead's in there. This next band's not in there. I, I don't. I wouldn't say. It is for us, though. It is for us. Yeah. It is for us, and anyone that appreciates music on a on a very deep level, I think, can uh, agree that this band is influential or a staple for heavy music, rock music, uh, metal music. Uh, I, they really don't have a genre. We we always try to identify what is this band, what you know category do we put them on on the library shelf, and I don't really know because Deftones uh, is the band we're going to talk about here. Referenced them quite a bit. Um, hung out with a few of the guys a few times, and this album White Pony came out in on June twentieth, two thousand. So we literally were like, you know, summer break was just starting. So talk about like time and place, like boom, out of high school. <laughs> heavy album that uh this band that i already like really loved with uh, around the fur which 
we referenced as my favorite Deftones album. And so I was super stoked on, on this album to drop. And uh, again, uh, actually kind of goes in uh, tandem with Tone's selection with Radiohead, OK Computer, or sorry, um, what was it, Tone? Kid A. Yeah, uh, Kid A. Kid A. Yep. Kid A, yeah. Because it's just a, it's a complete, you know, shift in soundscape and writing ability and promotion and, and just everything. So White Pony was dropped. And uh, yeah, it's just such a, just a huge, crazy shift for the band. Uh, Frank Delgado, uh, he's a DJ for the band. He's actually, he worked with them on Adrenaline and Around the Fur. Uh, but this is the first album where he was kind of introduced as a full-time member. So I remember opening up the booklet and seeing all members in there and being like, oh, who's this new guy? Um, he's the DJ. And this is kind of the era of music where DJs were starting to be implemented into band lineups. So like Limp Bizkit, um, Crazy Town, Deftones. Um, I feel like every <laughs> new metal band had a DJ. It was just like the thing. Incubus, you normal. That? Incubus. Yeah, Incubus, yep. Yeah, it seemed normal to see a band on YouTube and a DJ in the background. I was like, oh, yeah, it's normal now to see a DJ as part of a rock band or any kind of like, <laughs> you know, regular instrument. Um, but yeah, I was huge into Deftones and Around the Fur, and mainly through Napster, actually. So I got into them through Napster and had songs from uh, uh, the first record, Adrenaline, like Engine Number no. 9 and stuff. So when I was um, kind of a fan leading up to this, I was um, pleasantly surprised, but also kind of like, unsure similar to some fans of the radiohead uh, on the kid a from uh okay computer like this uh is not as heavy as adrenaline around the first is if anything i don't know it's like i wasn't a hardcore fan enough to be like this is radio friendly but it seemed like a shift it was way more melodic way yeah. more yeah yeah which and, is like uh, a tribute to them as a band like they they totally. okay we we're a heavy band but here we can actually do this too mm-hmm. and you did see elements of that on around the fur with uh be quiet and drive like you knew yep. they could do it but this was way that's more true. polished too yeah way more polished. yeah yeah no and that's a really good point because there are some songs on around the fur that like allude to it but it was so like sprinkled in it just didn't seem like it was a main kind of uh i don't know element to their band but yeah experimental new wave chino's big a big fan of that scene clearly he came up in the 80s so he's a big fan of like the cure and um, bands like that. So he started playing guitar on this album for the first time. So it wasn't just Stefan Carpenter. It was now two guitarists, which makes the album a little bit louder and coming from two different angles. So if you listen to it in the headphones, it's a, there's a lot more guitar coming through. Um, Steph tones. Steph tones. Yeah. Um, yeah. Shout out to Steph. Um, yeah. And so they recorded the album in West Hollywood, which I'm up there quite a bit. And Sausalito, which is across the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco, uh, a place that me and my wife love. It reminds me of, of Maine a lot, uh, only because of the uh, harbor and so forth. But um, there's a vibe there, and there's a vibe in West Hollywood. So I, I feel like that those definitely had some, um, you know, some uh, influence on the album production and and sound to an extent. Just because when you see landscapes like that, you're just engulfed in it. Um, but yeah, I mean the album climbed the charts pretty quickly. It actually is their only album that went platinum. It went platinum in 2002. So um, for a band like Deftones, and yeah, they're not in the Rolling Stone Top 100 or whatever, but they are a platinum-selling album uh, band, sorry, with that album uh, coming from like a essentially a metal band. That's something to say. It's not hard to, to sell that many records as, as that kind of band. But um, yeah, it's a kind of testament to Terry Date to an extent. He's the producer. He produced... Uh, 
bands like Soundgarden, Fishbone, um, you know, Pantera, Mother Love Bone from the grunge era and so forth. But um, I don't know. I think what I re- started to realize as I listened to this album more that it's it's more of a storytelling album. There's more like, you know, things that I love about Pearl Jam, like, oh, I can I can see this picture that's being painted for me. And it's no longer it's no longer like, I don't know, something difficult to figure out. It's just like it's all out there and I can just like either identify it or with it or not. But it's 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 all there in front of me and I just I can gravitate towards it and really put a uh, it's almost like a movie soundtrack to an extent. You can really kind of put some scenery to the songs. What uh, what tracks stick out to you, Nate? Oh, man, it's a front to back album. But, uh, yeah, there aren't a bad. There isn't a bad one, but like, yeah. if you had to like, for me, it's like uh, I love uh, Passenger with Maynard. Oh yeah. I mean, talk about bringing melody into your album. Totally. Here's Maynard who can totally pull that off. So, that's totally. a that's a fun kind of back and forth between Chino and Maynard and, and the music. Maynard from Tool, yep, and a perfect circle that you referenced in a recent uh, Instagram post. Yep. Um, that song's yeah. That so that I actually put down Knife Party, Elite, and yep. uh, and that song Passenger. Um, but then I just wrote a bunch of others because there's also good Digital Bath, the Street Carp. I Digital love Digital Bath's great. I actually got a limited copy that came with Boys Republic, which I think is my favorite Deftone song ever, and it's not even like an official I song. I don't even know that song. I need to uh, check that out. Yeah, look it up. Uh, it was a B side yeah, to this album. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. It was a. Yep. Where the so hell have good. I been? I'm a, I'm a Deftones fan. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, find that stat. Find that ASCP. It's. Is it on B sides and rarities? Uh, no, no, it's not. That's why. That's why I don't. Yeah, that's my. Bad. I had a special edition copy of um, White Pony that had it as a like almost like a secret track, so that nice. was cool. Um, no, I I love uh, Digital Bath is great. Change is obviously just an epic song. Um, epic song. And uh, Back to School, the the opener and the closer, uh, it kind of comes full circle with uh, the the Back to School variation at the end. Yeah. Just a it's a great record from front to back. You're right. There isn't really a bad song on there. It's just so good. It's so good. Um, one of the things about and Nate, you kind of alluded to this with like the the picture the album paints. One of the things that Deftones, one of the, one of the many 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 things I love about them is the one the album artwork, but two, yeah. it lends itself f- for the listener to draw their own conclusions. So I'll take yeah. take like Incubus Morning View. The album mm-hmm. cover is of a beach. Like it's intended to. The music is a soundtrack to the beach in my mind. But take Deftones yeah. like. This album, the artwork is very minimalistic. It's very minimal. It's just, hey, here's the outline of a horse or a pony. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's all you get. Yep. And it's kind of a theme throughout a lot of their albums where, in the lyrics too, I mean, Chino never gets on interviews and talks about the meaning of songs. It's always intended to be very cryptic and vague and open-ended for you to paint your own canvas. Um mm-hmm. I mean, you guys know me. Deftones is easily top three to five all-time bands for me, and this is up there. It's a top ten album, realistically, for me. Yeah. Um, and even now, I listen to it when I walk the dog. I listen to it headphones at work. It's classic. It's timeless. Mm-hmm. Absolutely timeless. And I think when you're alluding to the artwork, it seemed like such it was another shift because their first two albums were also kind of simplistic, I guess, to an extent. At least Adrenaline was. Um, but this one almost seemed like it was like a brand, like the White Pony thing. I sense maybe because they've used so much of this uh, these graphics for their merch. 
but it's like it became like oh this is like a brand so it kind of alluded more or it kind of added more baggage to the fact that like oh this is more commercial friendly um but it really is not and to the point where the uh label actually made them similar to the Eminem album Marshall Mathers before it came out or even after it was released actually they put it out and uh they weren't getting the success they the label wanted commercially that they had them re-record and put out a song um back to school as like a single so um this is for me this is deftones in their final form right like mm-hmm. they're they're very heavy they're very uh in your face for the first couple of records this introduces melody but it also has that heaviness and that edge and they kind of are that way from from here on out, right? Like they always incorporate heavy, they always incorporate melodic, they always incorporate sounds, they always, you know, they're they're constantly kind of changing, but not at the same time. This is why this is the first album for me that like hits home for me. Like they they they're gonna be this, and they're gonna be this yeah. from you know different but the same from here on out. Which is, I mean, that's why I love them. Not that they're constantly putting out white pony they aren't white pony is probably their best album um just because it incorporates everything for the first time but they have other albums that do some of that too like even self-titled a couple years later um and i love um koi no yoikon i love that one so much uh, mm-hmm. there's just you know there's some great records in there that, that they do this well but they did it here first and that's why i love this one yeah yeah and to you're right th- this was the pivotal moment for them because if you jumped from um around the fur to self-titled or saturday night wrist it would have been it would have been a very interesting jump and they probably would have mm-hmm. lost a lot of people along the way mm-hmm. yep. um, but i remember change being on mtv like yep, they yep. they got traction with this and, and i'm surprised it didn't go more than single platinum in hindsight that's, that's true cool. uh yeah good point no, that's I true. mean, just just go put digital bath or change in digital bath, especially in the headphones tonight. When you when you're done listening to this, put your headphones on, draw everything else out, and put that song on. It's just so perfect. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of it's kind of like a a clutch to that era. You know, clutch still plays theaters. Deftones still plays like theaters. Slipknot came came up around the time as you know, same time as Deftones, but they're selling out like ample you know amphitheaters and stadiums and stuff like that <laughs> so uh deftones is kind of they've kind of remained like this i don't know i don't want to say cult following because everyone a lot of people know who deftones are but they and it, i think it's a cool you know in between size band to be in as a band member i can imagine that must be pretty cool to have the versatility to be like you know what we're gonna do a tour off of white pony and play theaters all right, cool. We're gonna grab Incubus and Taproot and do the back to school tour, and we'll play some arenas, I guess, on this run. And then we'll go back to playing theaters again. Like to have that kind of flexibility yep. must be cool. Because I know as a band, like playing theaters and stuff is you get some obviously intimate shows and maybe even better sound. Um, well, it's funny we bring up Radiohead and Deftones in the same episode because yeah, a lot of people they say Deftones is the Radiohead of metal. Which mm-hmm. you couldn't say that in ninety eight, ninety nine. It was like this was the turning point for yeah. them, and they arguably play bigger venues now than they did years and years ago. Like, yeah, I mean, I saw them in two thousand seven at probably a fifteen hundred cap, and I think that was again one of those club tours, one of those small yeah. venue stuff. But um, 
I mean, even last year they played that Bank of America. Was it Bank of America Pavilion in Boston, the outdoor venue? Yep. I don't know yep. what that holds, but that's huge, right? Mm-hmm. That's a good size venue, yeah. Yep, that's a not a club, but not a gigantic outdoor amphitheater. So it's kind of in the middle, a uh, couple probably four to six thousand tops, but it's a big venue, yeah. Um, and you're right, this is very similar to um, the the divergence that Radiohead had with Kid A. This is uh, kind of not a divergence, but a an evolving sound for them, where they go from being that kind of heavy. There's some melodic aspects, but this is a little more melodic and has some change in what they do. No pun intended. Yeah, I think it. I think this album was a good crossover to anyone that was kind of interested in heavy music. I think we touched on this on an episode where it was like, you know, that's not my style of music, but I appreciate it. To like, oh, do you like The Cure? Yeah. Do you like Metallica? Yeah. Check out Deftones. Oh, awesome. Yep. All right, cool. Yep. This album that's actually a good way sense. to put it. Yep. You know, like it's a hybrid of different styles. You know, Chino brings a lot of that 80s kind of the Smiths, you know, cure kind of vibe to it, which I mean, it's a really unique thing to throw into metal because Stefan's a straight up shredder. You know, he plays a seven string with like Chino and then you got Abe. That's a, you know, really cool uh, drummer with all sorts of different styles of music, jazz included. So yeah, they stand the test of time, but it's like, it's a, it's the kind of music that almost shouldn't work, but it works and maybe caters to a smaller crowd, but, definitely a diehard crowd and uh yeah in terms of memories too like we were young so high school and i was just getting into this kind of met like hard heavy type of music and it really just changed everything about how i approach and appreciate heavier music it actually it put me into a whole new wave of heavier music and if it wasn't for deftones i don't know if i would appreciate it like i do today I think you're right. I think they did the same thing for me, Nate. Um, I I was like, this is a this and Nails, Nine Inch Nails, are probably the two bands that got me into some of the heavier stuff that I like now. Mm-hmm. Um, I I liked it, but I always was like at an arm's length, and now I'm a little more opening and a little more into it. So, yeah, th- this band is is a band that could totally attribute that to um, because there's so many aspects. They're not just this one trick pony. Not not to <laughs> you know white pony one trick pony. They're not that. <laughs> um, I know Chino was on recently with Zane Lowe, who where I mean we're just waiting for him to come here because we we would ask him legit nerd questions and not just when's the new album coming out. <laughs> uh, but uh, he talked maybe a, a reissue because it's twenty years old and calling oh, it nice. Black Stallion, which is a pretty <laughs> badass like change oh, off. Wow. Of that. I would buy that record right totally. now. <laughs> well, the other thing talking about genres is this album allowed them to distance themselves from new metal. So if you're yeah a metal purist, you know, new metals like the, you know, the, the cookie cutter, the rap uh, rock, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like the pizza, how to pizza, you know what I mean? It, it's, the, it's accessible. <laughs> it, it, it's watered down. The ingredients. That, from Mike? that was for Mike. Yeah. Uh, it, it, <laughs> yeah. One of our friends really likes pizza. Hut Loves pizza. pizza Hut. Um, <laughs> so yeah, this allowed the, them to, cause when you think new metal, you think, um, limp biscuit, right? Which is watered mm-hmm. down. I mean, it's just, some of the early albums are great, but then they kind of lost it. But um, this allowed them to shed that. And I know this album has elements of, you know, there's some synth vibes, there's some shoegaze, there's mel- melody, there's, it's all over the place. And it was just a pivotal time for them in the genre. They escaped that new metal 
Yeah. Uh, when people put them know? in that that yeah, when people put them in that new metal category, I I kind of I kind of balk at that. I'm like, mm-hmm. they, I mean, maybe they came up around then, and there's some elements of it, but they're not a new metal band, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, the first the first couple albums, you know, there's some rap rocky stuff, but anyone that thinks that they've clearly done themselves a disservice and dismissed the, them and needs to check out some of the newer stuff. Yep. Yep. Or <laughs> last 20 years. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's so many good records from here to then. Um, yeah. Awesome. Deftones. I mean, that's a, that's quite the run. Those three albums there, a little, a little kid, a from Radiohead, Marshall Mathers LP and Deftones white pony. That's, I mean, those are just three albums that came out 20 years ago and we've got many more to kind of plug <laughs> away at here as the year goes on. So you'll hear this again. Um, Anything else on Deftones, guys? Or are we we feeling good? No, I'd say feeling. I'm I'm good. I, I would say leave any other Deftones for future episodes because I think we'll we got more stuff. We'll yeah, weave yeah, them in for sure. For sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's, there's too much to cover. We're drinking a Deftones beer right now. <laughs> I know. Yeah, the Pog. I just had the Swerve City. Oh, so good, so good, nice. Nate. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, so yeah, that's gonna be it for tonight. Um, again, check us out on the socials: Twitter, Instagram at Podio Slave, and then uh, Gmail is Podio Slave Podcast at Gmail dot com. We will check you guys out next week. I think we had a pretty fun one in the in the uh, the idea that to go forward coming next week. We got a fun one. So um, hit us up on those socials if you get a chance. And I don't know. Peace out, guys. Having a good time. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for getting this far. Peace, Podheads. Adios.